How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, maybe two or three minutes of silent prayer, so we can all make sure we're all back in fellowship and ready to uh, focus on the word and study this evening. So let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Now, Father, we are so grateful for your grace to us. And as we continue to explore through what Paul has taught, what you have revealed to us through Paul in Romans 6 through 8, and the related passages that help us to understand just how profound uh, our spiritual life is in this dispensation, we are just amazed, especially as we realize, I think, a little more that the spiritual life of the Old Testament really lacks significant features that we take for granted too often. Father, we pray that as we study tonight, as we continue to probe through the uh, text of Scripture, especially the, this passage in Second Corinthians 3, that you would help us to see its significance and impact on us, to help us to understand how, how truly revolutionary in all of human history the church age is, and what a tremendous blessing it is for us to have all of these uh, features and provisions and assets that are ours in Christ because of what he did on the cross. And we pray that you would uh, help us not to take these things lightly, to recognize that all that we are and all that we have is due to you and God the Holy Spirit's provision of so much for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. While you're uh, turning there, I thought I would just mention something, because some of you know the person I'm going to be talking about. Uh, about a, a little over a year ago, about 15 months ago, a good friend of mine, a uh, pastor we ordained at Barack Church last, um, oh, last century, a couple of decades ago now it seems, by the name of John Height, sort of dropped off the radar. John and I are very close. And we've communicated a lot. And all of a sudden, I just couldn't get a phone call returned. I couldn't get an email returned. John dropped off everybody's radar. And John was doing various things to, to uh, help us with the ministry. And it turns out, John called me tonight. That was one of those things that I looked down at my phone, and John was calling me. And after 18 months, or probably or 15, 16 months, and hundreds of emails, phone calls, I thought, you know, if John's calling me, I've got to answer it. And it turns out that um, a little right at the beginning of that time period, he and his wife were moving into a new house, and during that time, his son, who's very bright, oh, I think it's his oldest son, very bright, has a, is a professor of music up in Wisconsin somewhere in a small town, was at a movie theater where uh, there was a lot of activity going on behind uh, he and his wife as they watched the film. And when they got up, this high school age couple, the girl was 13, had been having sex all through the movie. And he reprimanded them. The next day, the police showed up at his house. The girl had found out who he was and accused his son of rape and kidnapping and Lord knows what else. 
And so John went up there, as a good father did, and ended up spending the next year and a half working to do the research to get the evidence and to help the lawyers get everything they needed to be able to defend his son. His son was acquitted, and uh, um, you know because there was absolutely no no physical evidence other than the girl's charge. So uh, that's what happened to him. So I thought that was. Uh, Remarkable, and it's an example of how God prepares things in our life. We never know what happens, why things happen a certain way. Sometimes we get a glimpse of this, but about three years ago, John dropped, started to drop, dropped off the radar about 50%, and he had, he is retired army sergeant, and he had been asked by two or three soldiers to pre, to, uh, help defend them in a court martial case. Where, uh, where they were accused of uh, forging documents for various things. I forget the details now. And so in, in the military, you can ask anyone to defend you. It doesn't have to be a JAG officer, a lawyer. And so John did, worked on that for, th- for two years, got them all off. In the process, it exposed the fact that up into, uh, 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 I think, a bird colonel and at least one general had to, um, had to retire and uh, and I think uh, criminal charges were brought against a couple of other um, field-grade officers who were involved in this um, forgery and cover-up. So that, you know, John wondered, why does this keep going on? Why do I get dig? Why does it go on and on and everything gets deeper and deeper? And it was preparing him for you know, in the legal system and in uh, preparation for what would happen with his son. So just really interesting to see how God works those kinds of th- details out in a person's life. So some of you think you, you know, have some problems in your life. Well, maybe maybe you don't. Your problems are better than other people's problems. We're in Second Corinthians chapter three. We are in this chapter because I am taking the time to look at the other passages, key passages in the New Testament that emphasize the end of the law. And this is important for several reasons. One is because there are a group of conservative uh, Christian scholars who go by the name of theonomists who seek to resurrect the law of God as the normative standard for society. That's what theonomy means, theos, the first part of the word for God, nomi from namas, meaning law, God's law. And their position is that only the ceremonial part of the law ended at the cross, but the civil part of the law is uh, is God expects all nations to come under and apply God's law to all civil society. That position is usually associated with a prophetic position or eschatological position known as Christian Reconstructionism. And in Christian Reconstructionism, their view is that the mission of the church is to reconstruct society according to the norms of God's law, according to the norms of the uh, of, of their theonomic uh, position. And they are post-millennial because they believe they're not. They do not believe, as they are often misrepresented, that it's the role of the church to bring in the kingdom, not in an active sense, but that it is the role of the church. As the Holy Spirit works through the church, the Holy Spirit will expand 
uh, Christianity until it brings in the kingdom, and then Jesus comes back after the kingdom. It's a position known as post-millennialism. So it is uh, also known, uh, Tommy's first book written with Wayne House was a critique of theonomic post-millennialism. That's a lot of big words for people. Every now and then just say, say that and you'll impress yourself. So this is, that's one group. Now, one reason that's important is because there are a lot of people of, of, uh, of a anti-Christian persuasion in this country, a lot of liberals within the Democrat Party and some within the Republican Party who want to take that, ex- that extreme position, and, it's, and, and, and it truly is a minority position among conservative Christians. There are very few who hold that position. The two of the men who are most known for their writings promoting it are uh, Russus John Rushdooney, who most of you have never heard of before, and his son-in-law, Gary North, who's also well known as a conservative libertarian type economist. And uh, they have not spoken to uh, all. Rush Dooney's dead now, but they didn't speak to each other for many, many years over some minor disagreement over the observance of the Lord's table. But that um, that view is usually resurrected when you read uh, certain articles uh, dealing with those those Christian evangelical, the Christian right. That's what they go to. This is like the half of one half of one percent of all. Uh, conservative Christians would even come close to holding their view. Uh, nobody reads, very few people read Rush Dooney or Gary North or, or any of their material. They, they, they get a lot more play because of their websites and things now. And they're on some of the libertarian websites like, uh, what is it, Lou, uh, what's his name, Lou, Rockwell. Lou Rockwell. Gary North writes a lot on, on Lou Rockwell. And his, his economic advice is, is sometimes colored by his uh, Christian viewpoints, his theological viewpoints, but I understand a lot of time, uh, time, times it's not. But Gary's been known, uh, one time he accused me of standing naked in the public square. Um, then in Y2K, if you all remember Y2K, Y2K he sold everything he had up in Tyler and moved to the deep, dark, backwoods of the Ozarks and built a compound so that he he and his family could survive Y2K. And if you read him, he's the most convincing writer. You just knew that the world was going to implode at midnight. Nothing happened. So uh, that's, that's uh, Scary Gary, as we sometimes call him. Anyway, that's, that's one group. They believe that God's law is for today. Then there's another group of, of uh, Christians who have held that the moral law of God uh, is in effect for today, and they even, uh, but not to the same extreme or degree of the theonomists, and they, uh, they don't see a, distinct, a, a real distinction or a hard distinction between the Old Testament Mosaic law economy and the, uh, and the church age uh, economy or administration of God or dispensation, and often this group usually just simply referred to as legalists. They are the ones who often uh, try to observe 
the Sabbath, but they do it on Sunday. Somehow they switch the Sabbath from the seventh day, Shabbat, on Saturday to Sunday. And I remember some years ago a conversation with uh, one of the uh, better-known, uh, better-respected, well-known uh, Old Testament scholars who was the head of the Old Testament department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School by the name of Gleason Archer, who was a brilliant man, probably knew 30, 35 different languages. And he observed the Sabbath on Sunday afternoon. And when asked how he did that, he said, I don't watch television. <laughs> don't watch football. I had a retired missionary in my first church who was a Moody Bible Institute graduate. And see, a lot of people pick up these ideas. And she liked to, uh, she didn't think you should work or do anything like that on, 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 this, on Sunday, which was the Sabbath. But she and her three or four elderly uh, friends who came to church every, were there every Sunday, of course. They were always there on Wednesday night prayer meeting. But every Sunday they had a ritual. They went to Wyatt's cafeteria. And as I became aware of her views on the Sabbath, I asked her if she had a problem with the fact that Christians who worked at Wyatt's cafeteria were having to come into work to, to serve her her Sunday meal, and she quit going. I'm, it, the food never tasted the same again. I mean, she didn't quit right away, but it, it, she just that, that just put such a load of guilt on her because that's the kind of... It, it, I'm not making fun of people like this. There's a superficiality to it, and I, uh, I, I've heard other people like Michael Berry go off on something yesterday morning uh, de- dealing with uh, Christians and... And uh, liquor stores not being o- or being not being open before uh, twelve, and his arguments were totally inane. Not that he wasn't for a legalistic position; he was attacking it, but his information was all wrong, and and that's that's usually the kind of thing that happens. So we have this. I'm just saying these things because historically, since the first century, since the time of the Jerusalem Council in in Acts 15. Since, actually, since Peter walked into Cornelius's house, the church has had a problem with how to apply our, the relationship of the Mosaic Law to the Christian. And what what Paul is showing in these passages is that there's there's no relationship. The law ended. The law had a limited temporary purpose. And it was the Mosaic covenant was a finite covenant that was only given for a specific people for a specific length of time, and that uh, that purpose was completed and fulfilled by Christ on the cross. And it's been replaced by a new covenant, and it's been replaced by a new factor in the spiritual life of, of of believers in the Holy Spirit. And as we've seen in our study in Romans chapter 6, what Paul emphasizes is that what makes the difference for our spiritual life is what occurs in a judicial sense at the cross instantly at the moment we trust in Christ when we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That identification is known as the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And in that identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, the sin nature is crucified with Christ. It's not dead, but its power is broken. And we move from being an old 
the old, from being an old man, all that we were before we were saved, to being a new creature in Christ. The sin nature is still there. We still live in a mortal body. We still have the corruption of the sin nature. We're still going to sin. But the authority and power of the sin nature is completely broken. And so when we feel those urges, when we feel those those uh, seemingly overwhelming emotions come that, that we don't really have anything, uh, that, that we really can't avoid uh, responding to them and going with them, the reality of Scripture is that, yes, we do. We have a choice. And that's what Paul is, is hammering home in Romans chapter 6. But I don't think, at least for me, that until we did this last study in Romans 6, that I fully appreciated the fact that the Old Testament believer did not have that kind of an ending for the sin nature. There's no identification truth for the Old Testament saint. The sin nature is power is not broken for the Old Testament saint. He has the law which simply uh, tells him what the standard of God is, but there's no internal empowerment or transformation to enable the Old Testament believer to to apply the law and to do the law. It is, it is truly a diff, different dispensation in every single facet. And so this is why Israel always has this negative spiritual trajectory, even though there are high points. And we see the high points and the high points of certain heroic individuals in Hebrews 11, but they they never have a it never has a positive trajectory, and that is because the law was not designed to give them that it was wasn't designed to show them how to live, but that they really can't live that way, and that there will always be be failure. And so, I've taken the time to go to look at Galatians three. We'll probably come back to that in part of this study in Second Corinthians three uh, tonight. To, to help us understand just these dynamics, because I think by, and with this study in contrast between what we have and really understanding what every believer up until the day of Pentecost had, we don't appreciate what it is that we're able to do as believers today. It is absolutely remarkable. It is a, a complete uh, renovation this this terminology that Paul uses in Colossians and in Acts of a transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light is what happens. There is a metaphysical shift that occurs that impacts the entire universe with the death of Christ on the cross so that there really is a sort of a shadow, a veil of darkness over the human race until... That is broken at the cross. And then the power of the sin nature is truly broken so that we do not have to be slaves to the sin nature. So that's what has brought us to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in this passage, there are things that, that Paul brings out that relate to the permanent aspect of grace and that this shift to the new covenant in contrast to the limitations of the Old Testament. So he starts off, well, let me just uh, I'm skip that slide and go, um, just go to the beginning of the, of the chapter. Uh, Paul says, ask a couple of rhetorical questions, and in verse 1, just simply asking, do they need to commend themselves again? No, they don't. 
because he did that, he truly establishes his credentials as an apostle in the first epistle to the Corinthians. The backdrop for this, as I pointed out last week, is these false apostles who were coming, who had infiltrated the congregation in Corinth, claiming to be the true, genuine apostles of Christ, and claiming that Paul was a fraud. And they attacked his authority, they attacked his credentials, they attacked his testimony, they attacked uh, Paul's doctrine again and again and again. And so Paul has been, has been put in a position of defending and validating his claims to be an apostle. And so he gives them an experiential argument in verse 2. He says, you are our epistle. In other words, everyone knows the transformative impact the gospel that I preached had among you when I was in Corinth, when I came and proclaimed the truth that Jesus was the Messiah and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. You changed from darkness to light, from death to life, and that was manifested to everybody in the community in Corinth. They saw the change that took place. It was a real change that had uh, a flesh and blood impact. You are our epistle written in our hearts. Notice how he shifts. You're our epistle. You're our letter written in our hearts. And I want you to notice this this contrast here. He talks about uh, the, uh, this epistle written in hearts and read by all men. See, that's that visible testimony to all human beings. And then he goes on to say, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. So there's this contrast between an epistle written with ink and an epistle written not with ink, but by the Spirit of God, not on tablets of stone. So there's the contrast with the Old Testament there, that the law which was written on tablets of stone, but now this contrast is the present epistles are written on tablets of flesh, which is the heart the inner life of a person, so of, of the individual believer. So what he's emphasizing here is that what is new is this internal dynamic, this transformative change that occurs in people's life when they are saved because they be instantly become a new creature in Christ. And then when there is spiritual growth, there's a transformation. Now, if anybody here is thinking then one thing you should think about is that when you read 1 Corinthians, you don't really think there's a big change that's taken place in the church in Corinth. Remember, they're divisive. They've got problems with uh, being judgmental toward one another. They've got problems with uh, licentiousness in the congregation. They've got problems with uh, being judgmental towards weaker brothers and eating meat sacrificed to idols. They've got problems with mystics in the congregation who are speaking in tongues. There are all kinds of divisions and problems in, in the church. And sometimes it's easy to sort of focus on that, but that's normal because every Christian, every church, every congregation that's made up of fallen, sinful believers is going to manifest different problems like that. But there's a radical shift that's taken place in their lives because of grace. And so that's what what he's describing here. And when he responded to their first letter with his first letter, then it had an impact, 
and they changed to conform to the instructions he gave them in that in that first first letter. So he says, "You're a, an epistle of Christ, Christ ministered by us." I pointed out last time that a couple of the words that we need to pay attention to includes this one, "ministered." It's the verb on which the the noun deacon. Uh, diakonos is, is, is based, diakoneo. And this is uh, an important word because it has to do with this aspect of Christian service, serving one another in the body of Christ. And so they as apostles and those who are serving with Paul have ministered, have served the believers in the congregation in Corinth. But this is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. It is not based on their power, their credentials, their background, their intelligence, their achievements, their academics, or any of those things. When we get into verse 4, the topic shifts a little bit, and Paul begins to emphasize the foundation of his trust. Actually, that should be translated uh, confidence on the basis of of their confidence. This is a Greek word. Uh, based on the root of the word, uh, 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 a synonym for confidence uh, that is related to the word for pistis, for for faith. But I think confidence is a much better uh, concept there. That's what we have here in uh, Philippians 3, uh, 3 and 4, where Paul talks about the fact, for we are the circumcision... uh, who worship God, that is the spiritual circumcision. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. See, this is the infidence, the, the emphasis here that he's uh, uh, bringing is where's your confidence, where's your strength, Where, what, what do you think enables you as a believer to obey God? And he's saying the confidence is not in the flesh. It's not in our natural abilities. And in, first, in Philippians 3, 4, he goes on to say, though I also might have confidence, this is the same word, pepoithesis in the Greek, might have confidence in the flesh, and then he lists all of his credentials. It's not based on academic achievement. It's not based on native intelligence. It's not based on past accomplishments. It's not based on on the possession of certain natural skills or talents, but it's based on what God provides. And that's true for every Christian. It's true for you. It's true for every Christian you know, and not just for the Apostle Paul, not just for pastors, but for every single Christian, our confidence has to be in God. He's the one who gives us that uh, that ability in order to uh, carry out God's mission. It's his work, and he provides the means for doing it. So in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, he uses that same word that was used in Philippians 3, 3. We have such confidence through Christ toward God. This is a radical departure from the kind of thinking that dominated first temp- or second temple Judaism. This is a bold, brazen confidence, but it's totally based in God, not upon uh, works. It's a radical departure from the kind of confidence that Paul had uh, as a Pharisee, where all the emphasis was on his genealogy, his background, his training, all of these other things. Now, that's not to minimize those as unnecessary. 
It is to say that's not the focal point. The focal point is on the provision of God. So we come now to the next couple of verses, 2 Corinthians uh, 3, verses 5 and 6. And now Paul says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves. See, our trust is in Christ toward God, through Christ toward God. We are not sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. Those words, if you look at that, uh, anything, we can't think of anything. That that excludes uh, anything we can come up with. Everything is excluded. Nothing comes from our own abilities, our own natural talents. Everything is excluded that comes from us. But our sufficiency is from Christ. Now, the word that's used here for sufficiency versus the word that's used for sufficiency later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is, is a different word. It is this word, hikanas. And it's the word meaning uh, enough or worthy. It's sometimes it's translated ability or able or competent or qualified. I think the idea of ability or competence is what is emphasized here in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. It's not that we have the ability in and of ourselves to fulfill the ministry of Christ. None of us can do that. We can't, we, we can't do that in our spiritual life. The spiritual life is not a system of morality. This is the problem with the theonomists. This is the problem with various forms of legalism. This is the problem with all of covenant theology because covenant theology does not view the Holy Spirit, doesn't talk much about the Holy Spirit as the centerpiece of the, of the spiritual life. And this is true. Reformed theology is that those theological systems that have their root in John Calvin, uh, one of the great uh, leaders of the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation, remember, started on what day? That's right, October 31st. I'm glad somebody listens. had a conversation with my chiropractor about that today. He said, well, you can come in next week and see me on October 31st. He said, do you celebrate Halloween? I said, no, I celebrate Reformation Day. What's that? (laughs) So you see, you get to get an opening to witness no matter all kinds of things, all kinds of opportunities, just you have to know stuff. So we had our little conversation, and I taught him a little bit. And he's he's a real he's a real sponge. He asked me a lot of questions, and I just kind of let him go with that. But anyway, so that we celebrate the the Protestant Reformation next week. Martin Luther was the father of the Protestant Reformation. He nailed the ninety five theses or debating points on the door of the Church of Wittenberg on October thirty first because it is the day before All Hallows or All Saints' Day, which was a holiday. And on a holiday, people would come to uh, the Catholic Church, to the cathedral, and these would be discussion points that they could debate on that day. And so the night before an event is the eve, like Christmas Eve is the night before, New Year's Eve is the night before. So the night before All Hallows' Day is All Hallows' Eve, or Halloween, that's where the term Halloween derives. It's the night before when all the spooks and goblins and ghosts were uh, running around until that night, it's the night clock struck midnight, they would all have to go back into the grave uh, because it was going to be All Saints Day, just medieval uh, superstition and, and mysticism. But Luther led the charge. Calvin was the number two leader 
that uh, came out of a different geographical area. He was in France and uh, south, uh, southwestern Germany and Switzerland primarily. His main center of his ministry came out of Geneva. And out of Calvin's ministry, you have uh, Presbyterian, congregational, uh, several other different kinds of, uh, of denominations, uh, Anglo- a lot of the Anglican historic, not modern, uh, Anglican beliefs uh, were grounded on Genevan Calvinism. And in historic Calvinism, there was, um, there was no recognition of the role of the Holy Spirit because they didn't see this dispensational, heavy dispensational shift between the Old Testament and, and, the, and the New. And so in, his, in historic Calvinism, very little was ever said about the Holy Spirit until the 20th century and the end of the 19th century when Charismatics and Pentecostals began to emphasize the Holy Spirit a lot. They, uh, some uh, in the Calvinist tradition began to wake up and to start spending some time on it. But in, strict, in a strict Calvinist Reformed theology view of the spiritual life, it's all about just doing the right thing, just obeying Scripture. It's a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps kind of Christianity. And yet that's not what Paul is saying here. Our sufficiency is not of ourselves. We can't just go out and do what the Bible says to do. That's the problem he's going to come, come up against in Romans 7, that, that the more he tried to do the law, the more he realized what a failure he was. The more he tried to obey the law on his own without dependence on God or the Holy Spirit, the more he, he realized that he did what he didn't want to do and he didn't do what he did want to do. And he was completely, completely frustrated. So Second Corinthians 3, 5, and 6 is emphasizing this confidence that Paul has in God because God is totally sufficient. He is the one who gives us our ability and our our capability. So as we look at this, uh, we recognize that, that Paul isn't looking at the topic here of contrasting legalism, legalism versus grace, but law versus grace. He's contrasting the age of the law as being insufficient. The law is insufficient, but now because of grace and the provision of the Holy Spirit, our sufficiency is in is in God. So he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Now, that brings in a whole other realm of doctrine that's very important to understand. We went through this a lot in in our study of Hebrews, and we're going to need to go through it again just in terms of review uh, as we go through this chapter, because understanding the new covenant is extremely important for our spiritual life. It's emphasized in Hebrews. It's emphasized here. But it's something that is terribly misunderstood today. And I'm not sure that even though we have studied this several times, that we always think we have, have, have got a good grasp on the new covenant. So I want to review that to some degree uh, as we go through this, and I'll, after I finish looking at these verses, we'll come back and take a look at the New Covenant because he's connecting Paul, what Paul does here is he connects the fact that under the law, we were incapable, we were unable to do what God wanted us to do. The law was insufficient. 
but in the age of grace, because we've been given the Holy Spirit, our sufficiency, our ability comes from God because it is the Holy Spirit who enables us, who gives us the strength and the ability to live the spiritual life and to have true victory over uh, the sin nature, not just legally in terms of our position in Christ, but actually in terms of our day-to-day experience. And the sad thing is that there are too many of us who don't seem to ever uh, quite grasp how we, uh, how we see this applied in our own lives. The sin nature still seems to be just as powerful for us now that we're saved as it was before. And so Paul emphasizes uh, this distinction. We have to understand this. So he says that our sufficiency is from God. Verse 6 says, who, that is a reference back to God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. So as I've taught before, remember, the new covenant doesn't go into effect until the future. The new covenant, everywhere it is mentioned in Scripture, is a covenant between God and the house of Judah and the house of Israel. There's not a new covenant with the church. Well, wait a minute. It sure seems like that's what Paul is saying here, that we're ministers of the new covenant. But this is what is known as a sort of a proleptic, that means a future-type reference. Something's not going to happen until the future. The new covenant between God and Israel and Judah doesn't go into effect until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. What laid the foundation for the new covenant? The sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the foundation of the new covenant. We say this once a month. This is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. That's the, the legal basis for the new covenant is, this, and the, the, sacri- is the sacrifice of, of Christ on the cross. The new covenant doesn't go into effect until uh, until the second coming. But because the, of the new covenant and its future certainty, we have a related application of it today. It's, it, it's not much different from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament period, God made a contract with Abraham. And God said, I'm going to make this contract with you. And on the basis of this legal contract with you, I'm going to bless your next-door neighbor. Let's just think of this real simply as a mortgage contract. And so you have uh, one person entering into a mortgage contract with uh, somebody else. And on the basis of this contract, he says, on the basis of my contract with you, I'm going to bless your next-door neighbor. Is the contract with the next-door neighbor? Not at all. But the, the legal contract between these two parties is the basis for the benefits that go to the next-door neighbor. That's the Abrahamic covenant. God is the party of the first part. He enters into an unconditional unilateral covenant or contract with Abraham and tells Abraham that through you I will bless all the nations. That's the foundation for the salvation of Gentiles from from that point all the way through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament and until human history ends and the last human being is saved. It's all because God made a contract with Abraham that through Abraham and his seed, he would bless everyone else. 
It doesn't mean that they are a party to that contract. Now, that's the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant is the same kind of thing. It has different provisions. It's between God and and Israel, and on the basis of that contractual arrangement, God says, you know, I'm going to be able to bless with a new spiritual life and a regenerative spiritual life, something that never was experienced before. Now, they had regeneration in the Old Testament, but it wasn't like, it didn't come with all of the uh, extras, all of the optional benefits that we get in the church age. They were made a new creature, but they weren't a new creature in Christ. They were transformed from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, but they didn't get all of the other uh, accessories and assets that you and I get as believers in the, in the church age. So as such, anyone who is involved in evangelism is a minister of the new covenant because that new covenant, which goes into effect in the future, is the foundation for all of the blessings that occur to accrue to believers today. It doesn't mean the new covenant's in effect. It means that because the foundation for it, that sacrifice has, has been completed on the cross, that certain benefits accrue today. But not all, and, and they're similar in many ways to the new covenant. And this goes back to some of those uh, difficult things that we covered at the beginning of the study of Acts. We talked about the promises of the kingdom and the kingdom is uh, the promises of the kingdom to the Jews is specifically related to the establishment and the uh, uh, activation of the new covenant with the um, with the with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. So these things are related. But what we get today is a confusion on the part of a lot of Bible teachers. And I'm not holding myself up here as someone who I'm, I've arrived and I've gotten here. This is historic dispensationalism. And it is, has been taught by numerous people. It's just gotten muddy today. And we've lost sight of this. And people are teaching that we're in this already but not yet view of the kingdom. It's dialectics applied to biblical theology so that we're something but we're actually not that. We're in the kingdom but we're not in the kingdom. Uh, this kind of terminology, that's the foundation for what Dallas Seminary, some at Dallas Seminary are now teaching called progressive dispensationalism. Uh, the idea that the kingdom is progressively coming in today. But historically, those who are premillennial, historically, and uh, dispensationalists have believed that the kingdom was postponed completely when Christ was rejected as the king, and the kingdom won't come into uh, its own until Jesus Christ returns and the king returns. He's not crowned, as we saw in our study in, in Revelation, Jesus isn't crowned until the second coming. He goes to heaven, and in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, he is seated on his Father's throne. But he is not seated on his throne yet and does not become the King of kings and Lord of lords until the end of the tribulation period. So there's no kingdom until the end of the tribulation. There's no a uh, new covenant until the king comes to establish a new covenant. And we become participants with him, with the new covenant, by virtue of our position in Christ, not identification with Israel and Judah. 
That is the point that comes out of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter, chapter 8. We'll get into that a little more in just a minute. So Paul emphasizes the fact that it's Christ who's made us, that God has made us sufficient because of the Holy Spirit as ministers of the new covenant. Once again, we have, here we have the noun form, diakonos. This relates to that verb earlier where he was, I said he was, he said they were ministering, um, to the church in, uh, uh, to the church in Corinth. In verse 3, clearly you're an epistle of Christ ministered by us. That's their role serving uh, the body of Christ. And then he says, it's not of the letter, but of the spirit. And it's rightly capitalized. And he says, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, what in the world does this mean? Now, this, I, I, I'm going to try desperately in the coming weeks because it's going to take us two or three weeks to work through this, not to confuse you too much. But we have three different doctrines that come together in this particular passage, and it's really exciting when we can work our way through this. And the first is this whole issue of the new covenant and the promise of the Spirit, the new covenant and the promise of the Spirit that comes out of Old Testament prophecy. The second aspect that comes out of this is the role, the unique and distinct role of God the Holy Spirit in, in the church age. And then the, the third thing that comes out of this relates to the ending of the law as it's replaced by this much superior spiritual life of the church age. And those things are connected. We can't understand what's going on in this passage if we don't understand the role of the law, if we don't understand what's going on with the new covenant and, and its replacement of the law with something new, and we don't understand the role of God, the Holy Spirit. So let's look at just a couple of passages in the Old Testament. I'm, I don't want to drill down as deeply in this study as I did in Hebrews. Uh, I covered it in about 11 or 12 hours in Hebrews, and that's a, a good and sufficient study, but we'll hit some of the same high points. In Exodus 31:18, this is one of the passages that would form a background to Paul's thinking as he's writing uh, this, these verses to the Corinthians. In Exodus 31:18, Paul says, "When he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the he and the him there relate to God." speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. When he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he, that is God, gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, is there anything negative about the fact that God wrote on tablets of stone? Not at all. As I pointed out last time, this is one of the, 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 the negatives in this study is that people have said, well, Stone on the heart, that means stone's got to be bad. It's not that it's bad, it's that it's insufficient, insufficient. But it was good because Paul says in Romans 7 that the law is good and just and holy. So I don't want you to forget that. The law is good, it's just not sufficient. It didn't provide uh, everything. It had a limited purpose both in scope and time. Now, the law was clearly seen to be temporary. This is the argument that the writer of Hebrews uses 
when he cites the Jeremiah 31 passage in, in um, Hebrews chapter 8. And as I pointed out when we studied that, that uh, even though he quotes four or five verses from Jeremiah 31, the only thing that he's making a point about is that because the writer in Jeremiah uses the term new, that shows that the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant was always understood to be temporary. It was never understood to be permanent. It was a temporary covenant and was going to be replaced by a greater permanent covenant. Now, this covenant is emphasized in several passages in, in, the, um, in the Old Testament. And a couple of these verses I'm putting up here uh, before we get into a little more detail. Ezekiel speaks of this in Ezekiel 11:19. Then I will give them one heart, God says, and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now, see, we have many of the same kinds of same imagery here that we have in 2 Corinthians 3, this stone versus flesh and this reception of a new spirit. What God says in Ezekiel is that at the time, and and even though the word new covenant is not used here, this is new covenant terminology. It says that when the new covenant is put into effect, they will in the future have one heart. Now, is that true today? Is that true in the church? No, we don't have one heart. We're not united. We don't have one heart. I remember when I first went to seminary getting confused because I would hear some professors say things like in Acts that this is the beginning of, of the the new covenant, there was unity there. They were all of one heart. But it doesn't really fly. It's only a superficial unity. It's not what is described by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 11, that one heart, I'll put a new spirit within them. Now, do we receive a new spirit at, at salvation? Yes. But it doesn't bring with it the same qualifications or the same uh, characteristics that we get and these these, Ezekiel, these uh, passages in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. That's what I want you to pay attention to because there are similarities, but there are differences. And it's the differences that tell us that what is happening in the church age is similar to what will happen in the future. It's based on that future new covenant, but it's not the new covenant. It's not the... the um, it's, we're not in the kingdom. In Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So that's very similar to the kind of thing that we have in the church age where, we're one, where we are a new creature in Christ. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, see, that restricts the covenant to to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It says that God puts the law in their minds, and it goes on to say that no one will need to teach their neighbor the law because everyone will know it. See, that's not true today. If that were true, then you would need to be here and I would need to be here and I wouldn't have needed to go to seminary because we would just automatically know, know the law. And so that tells us that this, whatever we're experiencing today, even though it has similarities of, of regeneration, that we, have, we become a new creature in Christ and uh, we have a new heart, 
it's different because we're not given the knowledge, the innate knowledge of the law that is described in these these passages. So we have to understand that there is a new covenant in the future. That new covenant will bring about certain spiritual transformative events in the life of believers under that new covenant in the kingdom. While they are similar to what's going on today, they are different. And actually what we have today is even greater than what there will be uh, in the kingdom. Now, the other thing we need to do is understand a little bit about this this metaphor that's, that Paul is uh, developing here about the letter. If you look at verse 6, he says, uh, who, that is, God also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. So he's contrasting the letter with the spirit. Now, the letter is physical, and that is related to an epistle written with ink or written on tablets of stone. And it is talking about something that is, that is literal and contrasted to that which is written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, verse 3, not on tablets of stone or on papyrus, but on uh, tablets of the flesh. And then he says that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So how in the world are we supposed to understand this? Is Paul talking about interpretive methodologies here? Or let me rephrase that a little bit. Is Paul talking about how to interpret and understand Scripture here? Not at all. But that's how a lot of people take this particular verse. So I've, uh, I've listed out here four options. You've probably heard at least one or two of them for how to understand this letter versus the spirit analogy in this chapter. The first is that the letter is the law, and the spirit, of course, is grace in the New Testament. But this is wrong. Under this view, uh, what Paul would be saying is that um, we're not ministers of the letter, that is the law, but of the spirit, for the letter kills. Now, the law didn't kill. The law wasn't bad. That's the implication here is that the, the, the law would be bad. The letter is the basic, the law condemns though. And the law puts us, we're shut up, Paul says, under the condemnation of death as a result of the law. And so that is true. The letter kills in that sense, but the spirit gives life. It is not saying that the letter is the law. And if we abide by the letter of the law, then we're just going to be you know, we're not going to have real life. That's the implication of that position. That's why it's wrong. The second wrong uh, approach is to say that what Paul is saying here is that we, should, we shouldn't obey the literal sense of what the Scripture says, but a spiritual or allegorical sense. And this is very popular and became very popular in the history of Christianity. And it, came, it developed in the late 2nd century, early 3rd century, uh, most... Uh, most developed by an early church father by the name of Origen. Origen brought us some good things and a lot of bad things. But Origen, like many in that day, were heavily influenced by what's called Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism was sort of an upgraded version of 
uh, Platonic philosophy. And in Platonic philosophy, the physical was just a shadow of the real, which is in the realm of the ideal. And so the physical really wasn't significant or important. It's the ideal, the spiritual, that's important. So there are two different levels of reality, and material is inherently evil, and the spiritual is inherently good. What Origen did was he took it another step further, and he said there's three levels. There's just as we have the body, the physical, the literal. We have a soul, which is... Uh, somewhat immaterial and spiritual, but then we have the spiritual. So there's three levels of meaning in the text. There's the literal meaning. So if it says that uh, uh, Jesus went to Cain of Galilee, that would be the literal meaning. But then there would be a soul meaning there that would have to do with something allegorical, and that slips off into the subjective so anybody could come up with any meaning because it wouldn't be anchored to a literal walk to Cana of Galilee. And then the spiritual, the spiritual meaning would be even deeper than that. So it gets completely cut off from the literal historical, historical grammatical interpretation of the text. And so there are those who see this, use this terminology, the letter versus the spirit, as having to do with interpretation, that it, the letter, if you interpret the Bible literally, according to the letter, it'll kill you. You, you can't do that. That's, that's, and then that leads to the next meaning, which is that that kind of literalistic interpretation just leads you to legalism. And so that they, they then un- understand the letter to be a reference to a legalistic interpretation in contrast to a grace sense based upon this spiritual meaning, which is an allegorical meaning, which has no relation to the grammatical, historical, uh, exegetical meaning of the text. And then it's used the fourth way where letter refers to usually to some sort of warped uh, sense or twisted interpretation in contrast to whatever the true interpretation the teacher is espousing at the moment. So, uh, but that's in contrast to passages such as Romans 2, 27 and 29, where letter refers in those verses to the possession of the literal, uh, to the literal law. So what Paul is really saying here is the letter kills, the law written on stone kills, not because of a hermeneutic issue, but because the letter, the law, tells us what to do, but doesn't enable us to do it. So we're shut up under the condemnation of death. But it's only with the coming of the Holy Spirit in the church age that we're enabled to fulfill the commands of God. It's not talking about how you interpret Scripture at all. It's not talking about legalism versus grace at all. It's talking about the limitations of the law and the sufficiency of grace in the church age. That's what this is, is uh, emphasizing. So we've been made ministers of the new covenant. And now we have to connect this, and I'm going to wait until next time so we can cover that at one time. But this is going to be very important extremely important because it will connect some dots for us as we look at this that are uh, quite important. And and as Paul covers this in, in 
this whole epistle of Second Corinthians, which is not taught that that frequently, he he brings us to a point where it emphasizes uh, liberty. Just just skim down to verse uh, seventeen. He says, "Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's true freedom." Now, where does Paul end up when he goes through? He, all this discussion on the law versus grace as you go through Galatians, where does that end up? Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, that in Christ we have liberty. Christ died to set us free. And in Romans 8, where does Paul end up? There is no condemnation now to those of you who are in Christ Jesus. So it, it helps us to understand the foundation of, of true spiritual liberty. Not licentiousness, we're not free to do whatever we want to do, but we're free to do what God wants us to do because he has given us the divine enablement to do so through the, uh, through the transformative power of God the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So all of these passages mirror one another, but they come at this from a completely, uh, completely distinct viewpoint. So we'll come back to this next time. I won't spend an inordinate amount of time on the New Covenant because I've done that in detail in the past, but just enough so we remember what it is, focus on this in contrast to what we had in the Old Testament before we're able to go forward in Romans 7. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon uh, your historical work throughout the dispensations, giving uh, believers different abilities in each dispensation, different enhancements to demonstrate uh, ultimately that the only way in which we can ever do anything to please you is when you enable us and empower us to do it so that you get all of the glory and we just have the privilege of being used by you to bring about your, your will and to demonstrate that your will is perfect and acceptable and holy. And, Father, we pray that we would have a, a great desire to serve you in all every capacity, knowing that you have given us these capacities and you are sufficient for us in every area of service. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.